Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fun Calibre. Staying with the UK equities theme and to celebrate our 250th episode, we're focusing in on the UK mid-cap market or the FTSE 250. Today's guest tells us more about why UK mid-cap stocks can offer investors the best of both worlds, more excitement than their larger peers in the FTSE 100, but without many of the risks associated with the UK's smallest names. I'm Darius McDermott. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Abby Glenny, who is the fund manager on the Aberdeen UK Midcap Equity Fund. Abby, good morning. Hi, Darius. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for the time. So look, um, let's start off with your asset class. I think hopefully most of our listeners will be familiar with the FTSE 100, the large cap index in the UK, um, but maybe slightly less familiar with the uh, midcap, the FTSE 250. Could you tell us a little bit about it and, um, you know, the types of companies that, that are in that index and that you look at? Sure. So, yeah, I think everyone's, you know, usually pretty aware about FTSE 100. I think that the thing that I sort of characterize is that large percentages of FTSE 100 are sort of what I would call slightly older economy um, sectors. So if you think about some of the energy resources, healthcare, staples, um, and actually if I sort of broaden those a bit you've probably got you know a good bit over half of that index is in those sort of sectors whereas what I find about this of FTSE 250 mid-cap space is that it's much more dynamic in terms of those newer economy type sectors so you know things like media technology a lot of actually new support services type businesses um, so I think that makes it quite an attractive place to invest and also particularly if you're looking through a cycle so, you know, without a doubt, FTSE 100 therefore has times that it is very attractive. And, you know, 2022 is definitely one of those. But if you're yeah. taking a longer term approach, you know, it's much more sector diverse. I think you've got much more growth dynamics through that whole space. Um, it's also, you know, I think it's big enough and broad enough. So by definition, by the name, you've got 250 companies. Even if you take out the um, sort of investment trusts and look at that index, you know, I think you've still got a broad enough range. And the thing that actually we think is quite important as well is if, um, the AIM index. So, yeah. you know, for people who don't really know AIM that well, I would just say that it has massively improved over the past 10 or 15 years in terms of quality of business, governance. You know, these are properly profitable, dividend-paying, strong businesses where a lot of them are actually in the market cap space of equivalent to FTSE 250. So, for instance, in our mid-cap fund, we would sort of sustainably have 25 to 30% of our fund in the AIM index. And, and they're, the bigger, they're the bigger companies in AIM, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. That probably would be big enough to be in the mid-cap index were they on the full London listing. Yeah. So we look at, I mean, we probably look at the sort of biggest 100 companies in AIM. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the I don't know at the moment, but you know, sometimes some of the top companies are probably touching on the market cap range of FTSE 100 even. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some proper businesses in there. And the other thing about the mid-cap index is the FTSE is 75% or thereabouts of its earnings come from overseas. What sort of rough ratio is that then on the mid-cap? Yeah, so mid-cap is 50-50, basically. Yeah. And I think you're right, so 50 probably has even gone slightly above that. And I yeah. think the thing people almost don't think about sometimes is you are taking an inherent FX bet in FTSE 100 that you you maybe don't think you're taking by buying, you know, a, a UK index. Um, whereas I would say, you know, once again, sometimes it's positives and sometimes it's negatives in terms yeah. of overseas earnings. Um, but you, 
you through a cycle are really taking more of a bet on the actual company underlying fundamentals, I would say, in the mid-cap space. So let's just dig in then a little bit deeper. Um, what makes this mid-cap, these 250 companies, the next biggest 250, what makes them attractive um, for an investment case? Yeah, so I think there's a few things. I think they offer actually a lot of the things that people like more about the small cap space. So they offer a lot of the growth dynamics um, that a lot of investors are looking for, particularly if you're taking a sort of longer term approach and just that opportunity. Um, you know, one of the things we like about businesses, for instance, is um, where they can expand into adjacencies. So that might be a new division, a new product, a new geography. Um, and actually within that mid cap space, when you're taking that decision, it, it's big enough often that it actually impacts the whole business, if that makes sense. You can you can yeah. shift around the business and really grow dynamically. Um, so we like that. We like that also there are, um, and we think about the sort of risk of the mid-cap space, you know, actually we think due to the diversity of it, um, you know, some some investors are slightly cautious about investing in small cap space. You know, the mid cap yeah. we think gives a lot of the growth opportunities, but with a lower risk dynamic. Um, and actually, the liquidity is all right as well. So, yeah. you know, this is definitely something that's been more of an investor focus if we think about the last five years or so. Mid, mid, mid cap liquidity um, is, is pretty good, particularly, I think, if you're willing to sort of invest in businesses for the medium term. Um, the other thing is like people are often have quite a negative view about has the UK been unattractive to invest in for the sort of last 20 years. And I think if you look at the large cap space, the number would sort of maybe suggest that. Um, but actually, UK mid cap, I think, over the last 20 years has generated twice the return of large cap. And actually, I think it's generated better returns than S&P 500 and like the MSCI Acqui. So I think people forget actually what a good return um, universe UK mid-cap has been. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, investors in mid-cap have, have, have done very well mm -hmm. when maybe the large-cap index you know, ha, ha, has been fairly yeah. sideways, if nothing else. Yeah. I think one um, other thing, maybe, Darius, as well, is that like that's just looking at an index level. But I think one of the interesting things as well is that you know, these companies are generally less well-covered than large-cap businesses you know, in terms of the number of sell-side analysts looking at them. I think there's more sort of information asymmetry and opportunity to really add value. So particularly for a sort of active fund manager, I think the opportunity in mid-cap is really quite attractive to, to try and outperform. And you can also be quite, um, you don't really have to be that benchmark aware. Um, you know, obviously that comes into play in terms yeah. of risk dynamics and things, but it's very different to 1500 where, You've got some really large positions that you really have to have a view on all of these. And actually, even if you're negative on them, you maybe still have to own some of it, you know, just to yeah. be quite underweight. The mid cap space is just very, very broad in terms of, you know, percentages um, of the different holdings. So lots of opportunity for an active fund manager to, to add alpha over and above the sort of returns that the index has given. Yeah. Um, another part of the, your style of investing is to run your winners. Um, and, you know, that, that means you're buying companies when they're relatively small as they sort of get bigger and, and show that dynamism potentially for growth that you've talked about. Could you give us an example of a, a stock that you bought that was quite small, maybe, and that, that one that you've sort of run into, hmm. you know, uh, be, being larger? 
Okay, yeah. So you're right. There's a we do have a sort of run your winners mentality, and I would say if I look at our mid cap fund, there's probably different buckets of that. So yep. there's probably some buckets that we sort of consistently held, you know, strong positions of. Um, so I would pull out things like, for instance, Midwich, which is a value add reseller in sort of audiovisual equipment, um, increasingly um, diversified in terms of geography. Um, things like Hollywood Bowl. We've held pretty consistently, Tempin Bowling Operator, things like Gamma Communications. Um, and actually, all of those we would have bought as IPOs, but perhaps right. that would have been in our small cap fund, you know, originally when they first listed. And we've yeah. held those throughout, and they're now, you know, pretty sizable sort of um, mid cap names. There's others, and actually, some of these have been in existence and we've held them for a lot longer, though, where we've held them in some form for a long time, but actually because of portfolio construction, because of how our process works, uh, we've either come in and out of these businesses or position sizes have sort of significantly changed over years. So um, things like Telecom Plus, you know, we've probably owned um, for you know maybe 15 years in, in sort of some form, but not owned at all, all times. Uh, CBS, the pet veterinary biz- business as well. Um, you know, we we had exited that after we thought the investment case didn't really fit our process anymore. And then I think we bought that back in 2021. Um, the other ones, Greg's is a good example. Uh, you know, everyone knows Greg's. Absolutely. We've had that for a long, long time. Um, but yeah, similarly, the investment case has sort of come and gone during different periods. And I think that's yeah. where our process allows us to believe in some of these things for the long term but also gives us a really good judgment of when we should sort of step away from that for periods. Well, maybe it's almost as if we'd planned this, but that's a nice segue then into the process. And a big part of a mid-cap and a small-cap funds that you're associated with has something called the matrix as part of its process. Maybe for our listeners, you could describe what it is that the matrix does and how that helps you um, to, to, to pick and potentially avoid stocks as well. Sure. So, I mean, the matrix is essentially a stock screening tool. Um, and this has sort of been in-house developed. And I think maybe what's different to um, what other funds might might look at in terms of screening tools is that you know, we've used exactly the same screening tool for 25 years with um, you know, there have been minor changes, but essentially we've looked at broadly the same factors over all that period with broadly the same weightings. Um, and we do also continue to look at you know, whether those factors are still the most relevant. And so there have been a few changes over that sort of 25 year period. Yeah. And how we would use it, I guess two main ways would be the matrix is really useful for stock screening, but also for portfolio construction. So for our whole investment, we can look at what is the matrix telling us about that stock and it'll give us a a numerical score and we can also look at what all the factors individually are saying Um, and you know essentially we are looking constantly and this gets updated twice a week so it's live data we're looking at what stock are screening well you know should we be paying more attention should we be going and doing the fundamental research on so you know it's only a stage in our process but it is quite an important one um, I think then portfolio construction. So we also are constantly challenging ourselves on the existing portfolios of looking at you know which stocks are not scoring well, and that's the ones we're constantly challenging ourselves on in terms of you know part of our sell discipline. 
Um, and I think it's really good because it also, um, I think this is an this is an industry where, particularly if you're a long-term shareholder of things, you can become quite emotionally attached to businesses. And actually, the matrix has no emotional attachments to stock. So it's really good at, you know, making you sort of neutral in that way and also creating sort of team challenge and debate because it's very obvious for anyone, you know, why do you still believe in this stock? You know, it's been scoring weekly for a while, etc. Um, so an improving matrix score of things you potentially look at and a reducing matrix scores, if, if you hold it, at least it causes you to think and, and, and revisit. Yeah, absolutely. And that's it. You know, we're not running quants funds, but it's a really disciplined part of our process. I think it provides a lot of consistency as well through um, through the cycle. Um, I think one of the things that's really useful about the matrix for us is that the, the factors are are fit around our investment process. So they are quality, growth, momentum, and we do have two of the 12 factors are valuation factors. So you know, if you believe in our process, you absolutely have to believe in the matrix and because it, yeah. it's very aligned. Um, but I think the thing that's quite interesting about it in periods um, like we see at the moment, and we've had a lot of these discussions with clients, is that our processes, you know, we don't change through a cycle. But what is flexible is what is screening as quality growth momentum. So that's where the matrix helps you to stay aware of where companies or sectors which might not have been, you know, your most traditional stocks, maybe you've never held them before, maybe they're in a sector you don't typically own that much of. Actually, those are becoming quality growth momentum in what is maybe a different economic environment. And you mentioned some of the factors there, sort of, Earnings, upgrades, momentum. Mm-hmm. Does does the matrix take any account of balance sheet, or is that just a separate piece of work you do on stocks that look interesting? Yeah, so we have two quality factors. So balance sheet comes into both of those. So one is the right. Petroisky score, um, which is like a, a composition actually of lots of different underlying financial metrics. Also Z score. Um, right. So Z scores. The thing about Z scores, which is quite different, is that it tends to be. In, very important in a small um, number of periods. So people often either really care about Z scores or they don't care at all. It's a little bit binary. So we've seen yeah. that through the last 18 months or so in terms of when people actually worry about balance sheets and companies going bust, that becomes quite important. Um, but a lot of the other quality factors we would look at in terms of like revenue visibility, recurring revenue and contracts, cash generation, you know, improving margins, those are all things that come more into our, our fundamental research than they perhaps do in the matrix. Thank you. So look, maybe then just to finish up, if we could talk about a couple of your largest stocks, um, why you like them at the moment and what maybe some of their sort of growth characteristics are. Okay, so maybe, I mean, one that we've held for quite a while, which is still one of the biggest stocks in the portfolio, would be Keyword Studio. And you know, for people who don't know it, it is essentially the the global leader in outsourced services for video game companies. So, you know, their typical customers are all your big big AAA games developers, as well as maybe some, you know, smaller uh, indie type developers. And what I've seen with this business is it has really expanded into adjacencies that I talked about before. So this business is truly global in nature. But also what I've seen them do is since I since I first invested in this, which would have been maybe 20 2017 probably um i've seen them really invest in terms of the number of different services as well that they offer so, you know these guys can help with games development artwork they can help with customer support 
um, all sorts of dynamics. And what's what's important about that is the cross-selling opportunity that they have within these big customers. Um, it's a business which is very driven by organic growth, but also does complementary acquisitions. Um, and for us, that's really important because, you know, we don't mind businesses which are acquisitive in nature to some degree. But we yeah. really want to always see that supported by organic growth. So you're not just buying growth. Um, and I think the type of acquisitions that keywords do I actually really like because uh, they're either very clear skill sets or they're really actually about acquiring people. So it's a, it's a difficult industry to, to grow people because it, it's actually quite competitive in nature. And a lot of these, um, particularly in the games development side, they like to work almost as an independent yeah. And keyword becomes a really good home for them because I think there's a really strong culture, but they also let the sort of, um, particularly the studios nature of parts of the business really drive their, their sort of own culture and retain that. Um, so I think they've got a really good balance in that and management have shown they can sort of execute um, on that strongly. So it's a really high return business, good margins, uh, really sensible about their balance sheet leverage as well. Um, and also it's a, in a growth industry, you know, yeah. Um, which I think More is people are gaming for sure, aren't they? Yeah, and I think one of the things people got wrong about keywords is that when we saw um, the the COVID boost of some of the, the sort of AAA games because people were selling more because people were at home gaming, everyone sort of thought keywords would be a COVID beneficiary. And actually, I think a lot of that is on a lag cycle for them, and they're much more um, much more balanced, I guess. So, you know, the potential benefit was actually going to come later when those companies had, you know, great profits and continued to invest in their business. And what I like about keywords compared to um, perhaps some other video game businesses is you're not making a bet on a game's particular game's success or failure. You know, so they're really spread across yeah. all sorts of games by all sorts of developers. And maybe then just a, a headline stock when you've already touched on Greg's sort of a high street name that people will know. Is that just a shop rollout? The more shops they have, the more profitable they are, or is it product? Where is their, their, their growth coming from? Yeah. So, I mean, Greg's is really quite mixed in terms of actually their, their growth dynamics. And I think that's quite important as well, because they, they also, they do need to drive growth because they definitely have cost inflation. Um, at the moment and probably the they've had different periods of cost inflation but this is an environment where actually there's a lot of different cost lines are all showing inflation like other businesses yeah. have um, but what we've seen about Greg's is really that sort of ability to innovate I think one of the things if I compare Greg's now to five years ago the product innovation and also the social media marketing innovation I think are very, very impressive. Um, and if you compare that to peers, I mean, we're also seeing at the moment that, you know, their value for money proposition is really resonating with clients. Um, yeah. Well, I think one of the things that there's been, there's a lot of debate about Greg's in terms of what happens, you know, in a consumer squeeze. And actually it's, it's quite hard to judge. So do people perhaps trade down to Greg's, which is a benefit, or actually do people yeah. trade away from Greg's, you know, and, and, but at the end of the day, what I think we've learned is that, People are on the move, and that is your your typical Greg's customer. Is yes, you could buy all the ingredients and make a, a lunch at home and take it with you. Actually, the cost benefit in terms of wastage and products isn't actually that big, and it's the the ease and the fruitful that is really important. Um, and I think on the back of that, they've really innovated in their estate as well. So 
behind the scenes, you know, the bits that we don't see in terms of marketing distribution. Um, um, I think that's been really innovative. I think they've also got a store rollout, um, particularly, um, I think we've seen them really step away from just being sort of city centre, high street location. So actually it's your retail parks, your industrial sites, it's where you live. And we've seen that, I would say, over a number of years. So actually at COVID, I think what people badly misjudged was that it would be very driven by just city centres. Yeah. By, time, by, that, by that period, they'd really um, broaden their site locations a lot more. Um, and I think that's one of the things that uh, we had a really interesting discussion with them two weeks ago, actually, about it, which is Greg's can make lots of different sites in lots of the different locations work. So it's not like a cookie cutter approach and it makes them really flexible in terms of the type of space that they can go for um, the landlords they can work with. Because, you know, one site, for instance, they might want to have you know a big seating area. They might want to have a full service offering. You know, in other sites, they can have something um, that's different for that audience. And I think they're really starting to sweat those assets more as well. So. Sure, you know, in future years, I'm sure lots of us will be going for our dinner in, in Greg's. And we always said before COVID, who knew people would pay for a Greg's delivery? But they absolutely do. Abby, that's really, really interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, not just about some of the stock examples, but the whole asset class in general. Aberdeen UK Midcap Equity is a high conviction strategy which invests in medium-sized companies for the long term. It invests in businesses when they are well-established, but still have a long runway of growth potential. For more information on the Aberdeen UK Midcap Equity Fund, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. 